name is Ben, and I get to serve here at, right now as a youth leader, and I get volunteer in a few other ways. And I'm really honored to be able to bring the word to you all this morning. Um, with that, I will uh, pray over for offering. I will mess with this once, and I won't touch it again. Um, all right. Is it better? I won't touch it. Okay. Uh, please pray with me. I'll pray for offering, and then I'll pray for the start of the sermon. Lord, we slow down and we come before you. We acknowledge our need for you, Lord. We know that we need you more than we need our next breath. We know that nothing matters without you. Nothing exists without you, God. And so everything that you've given us, God, it's only our, our privilege to be able to give it back. So, Lord, I pray that you would receive this offering uh, from each family, from each household, from each person, uh, whether it's money or otherwise. God, would you receive this offering as praise? I ask that you would uh, give wisdom to the people who get to make decisions about money around here, uh, that you would lead them to your will. Lord, I also thank you just for the chance to be able to, to give you praise. Uh, I'm reminded of uh, in Psalm 8 where it says, what is man that you are mindful of him? God, just thank you for the chance to even be able to praise you. Lord, I ask that you would speak through me today as I bring the word and uh, that your agenda would happen and no one else's. Lord, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Man, well, like I said, I'm Ben, and I get to preach today. We're in a sermon series uh, called Hidden Treasures, where we're taking a look at little noticed or you know, skipped over passages throughout the Bible that we find have tremendous depth, that have God has a lot to say in every word that he speaks. And so we're in week three of this sermon series, and today our sermon's called Upside Down Messiah. We're going to be in Matthew 12, verses 15 through 21. So when I was deciding uh, what passage to focus on for today's sermon, <clears throat> you'll have to excuse me if I cough. I have a slight cold. I've tested negative for COVID. So I feel okay about being in person. Um, but then that's what masks are for. They block more than just COVID. So I'll keep my mask on when I'm around people. Anyway, the Lord brought to mind a passage in Matthew that gets lost between several other important ones. Oftentimes throughout the Gospels, we find such rich language back to back to back to back that when something doesn't automatically apply to our culture or to our situation, we think, I can think about that later or I can focus on that later. And this passage in Matthew 12, verse 15 through 21, it's the quintessential version of something super important that we just miss because we're going too fast. Uh, this passage quotes from Isaiah 42, which is a hidden treasure in itself. Matthew identifies Isaiah's description of a future Messiah figure with Jesus. Right? It's one of the few times where Jesus' calling as a servant of God is made explicit in the Gospels. Just the thought of this passage gave me so much comfort a few years ago. Uh, and reading it again to prepare for today brought all of that back. And I'll explain more when I get to it. Before we launch into our passage today, I think it's really important to bring us up to speed with what's going on in the gospel at this point. I want to share the context with you, right? Um, in, the, in the moment in the gospel that we find it, we're in full swing of Matthew telling his story. He's starting to build up the tension between Jesus and the Pharisees. The context of this passage is drawing the audience's attention to the fact that the religious leaders in Israel will miss Jesus. 
He's preparing them for missing the Messiah. In the stories before and after our passage, Jesus encourages the story before. He encourages his disciples to pick and eat grain on the Sabbath. He heals a man with a shriveled hand on the Sabbath, proclaiming himself Lord of the Sabbath. And I actually have a slide on it. So Jesus is making trouble for himself, basically. He's saying he's Lord of the Sabbath. This is a challenge to the authority of the Pharisees. He's speaking against them when he says language like this. Drawing out that reaction that we see in Matthew 12, verse 14. I'll read it right now. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. So Jesus bothered them enough that they were like, "Eh, we might need to take this guy out. So the Pharisees began to plot. Right Then our passage happens, which we'll talk about the rest of today. But the passage after ours today shows the Pharisees questioning Jesus' authority for healing a demon-possessed man, as well as requiring a sign from Jesus to prove himself on their terms. Right In the, the Jesus and Beelzebul story, uh, they accused him of being in leagues with the devil. So the context of our passage is tense and accusatory. They plotting to kill him and accused him of being with the devil. Uh, (laughs) The context for our passage is tense and accusatory, much like Facebook and Twitter are these days. (laughs) Ah, Thanks. (laughs) Thanks. Anyway, so we'll get into the passage. I'll read through it once, and then I'll kind of go phrase by phrase to, to talk through it. So Matthew 12, verses 15 through 21. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations put their hope. I love this passage. So at the beginning of the passage, we see that Jesus left a place, you know, followed by crowds because of the heightened tensions with the Pharisees. In verses 14 and 15, we see Jesus withdrew for a reason. He was aware of their plotting without being directly in the conversation. But he knew it wasn't time yet for him to be revealed as the Messiah of Israel. So he put off the conspiracies and plotting until it was God's timing. And that's what you see towards the end of the Gospels. He starts to make a little more of a ruckus, a little bit more of bothersome, and he doesn't try to get away, right? So Jesus withdrew for a reason. Then Jesus healed all of them who were sick. Let's not just skip over this part, right? Jesus healed so many people throughout his ministry, and we can thank God for the example that we get to see and for the healings that we can still ask God for today. Jesus was more than just a virtuous man or a teacher. He's not just one of the great uh, mystics of the past. If we're tempted by, by the world around us to reduce him to less than he is, a careful reading of Scripture will put that to bed quickly. Jesus wanted to keep the messianic secret. Okay, the messianic secret is kind of a term that we use to talk about the secret of the Messiah, right? This is the, the putting off of conspiracies until it was God's time. All the people of, of Israel at that time in history were waiting for God to take back control against the Romans, against the other people who oppressed them, 
over the land of Israel. They expected, wrongly, a political or military leader to win back power for them, to take power on the world's terms, to set up God's government again like it was before the exile. So they were looking for a Messiah, but in the wrong places. They were looking for an anointed one who would lead them on the world's terms. When Jesus came onto the scene, he was up to something that no one had any idea would even be possible. So Jesus wanted to stay in control of the delicate political situation in Israel at the time. He wanted to let it lead to his wrongful arrest and his execution without sparking a human, full-on political rebellion against Rome, which would result in flattening Israel completely. I think the best way to explain this possibly in a more simple way is to think about like having a crush in middle school or high school, right? Most of us have probably been in that situation where you like someone and you think about telling your friends about it or you think about asking their friends if maybe the feeling's mutual. But you realize that everything will be over if you get embarrassed, that you don't want to go out and make, take the risk because it could just blow up in your face and then you'd be humiliated. So you just decide not to talk to anyone about it at all. You keep the secret so that no one else can ruin it. You get to be in control of how your information airs out. That's a sort of similar way that Jesus keeps the secret just enough so that, you know, of course, no one really listens to him. No one really listens to him in any of the stories. But he tries to keep the secret just enough that he can fulfill the ministry God's called him to and then go to the cross. Matthew uses this withdrawal as a this withdrawal, this healing, and this warning, he uses those things as logic for the fulfillment of a prophecy. Right? I'll reread verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken through him, what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. When it says this, you always want to look at the verse right before it. So when we read things out of context all the time, if it says then or this or although or but, any way that connects it to the verse before, uh, just let it be simple. Like, just let it be simple, right? So these things Jesus did was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. And he quotes Isaiah 42, one of the servant songs. I will spare you the deep theological exploration of this amazing concept, okay? Ask me about it later. I love it. But it'll be enough to say uh, that there's four sections in Isaiah that are about a servant of God, who will bring about God's renewal in the world, that he'll restore Israel to its place in the world, and he'll put God back on the throne, basically, because God keeps doing his things in the wrong ways, right? You would, I would think that if I were God, I would probably just be like, I am God. You know, like I just tell people, right? But God has this way of doing it that is always against the ways of the world, right? So these servant songs in Isaiah, they're just called that because they're talking about a servant. Uh, they're, of course, associated with Jesus for us as Christians, and Isaiah 42 is the first one of them. The four verses that, uh, that we quote here, verse 18 through 21, that's the start of the servant song, and plenty of other spots across the New Testament refer to other verses throughout. Like, if you went to read verse four, uh, chapter 42, the very next verses. Uh, Jesus actually gets in trouble for reading about himself later on in one of the other Gospels. So I encourage you, flip back and forth, look up the notes in your Bibles. Uh, it's actually pretty fun. So when Matthew 
believes that, or he declares that this prophecy is the fulfillment in Jesus, it shows us how scripture is like a beautiful tapestry, how it's woven together to declare God's works in the world and to show us how to be human, how to be fully human the way God wants us to be. Uh, I find it necessary to kind of back up and talk a little bit about Isaiah, right? So Old Testament prophecy has two main forms, right? It's usually prescriptive. You think of like a doctor uh, giving you a prescription, like he's kind of telling you what to do now to get through this thing, right? So this is prescriptive. It's speaking to the people on the brink of destruction about how they can turn back and God will relent from the calamity that they deserve. That's most of Old Testament prophecy. Some Old Testament prophecy is predictive, right? The common way we think of the word prediction, right? Uh, For the second half of Isaiah, really Isaiah 40 through 66, uh, it's predictive. It's talking to people who are living in a horrible time now for them about a future reality where God says, it'll get better someday, and here's how. In essence, for the people of God, predictive prophecy is intended to inspire them to hope in God that his reign will be restored to what it should be someday. So our passage being a reference to this servant song is all about hoping that God will restore his rule over the world. But instead of telling us, Jesus shows us, right? So now we come to the content of the prophecy, right? I'll uh, just read each verse and talk about them again. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. So Jesus is the ultimate obedient person who ever lived. He is the capital S servant of God. He heard God's voice and his call on his life and was obedient as far as God would take him. Jesus bears the Holy Spirit. God loves Jesus, and God delights in Jesus. We've actually heard this language before in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17, when uh, Jesus is getting baptized, I'll just go back and read it. 3, uh, 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So we see that uh, God is declaring that he supports Jesus in his mission, right? The Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove and resided with him for the rest of his ministry, and I suppose, you know, ever after then. And we read in John when he breathed the Spirit on his disciples. That's a rabbit trail. Anyway, God the Father encouraged Jesus at his baptism, gave him the calling that he went on to follow. And this, again, is Matthew seconding that, essentially, Jesus is the bringer of justice, right? He'll proclaim justice to the nations. By proclaiming justice to the nations, Jesus will be like a righteous king who comes to be in charge of a new region, for example. He's given the power of the Spirit of God to make a kingdom that is built upon justice. It is built upon ethically sound laws that point to the perfect God. The nations is used to explain how far Jesus' reign will reach. Everyone else including the Jewish people. But you might wonder, in what manner will Jesus be obeying God, right? Because so often, 
God tells us kind of how, you know, what to do, but he doesn't really give us much instruction about how. So we get to be free. We get to express our worship to God and our obedience to God in different ways that make sense with our culture, make sense with our personalities or with our, with our people. Um, similar to worshiping in different styles coming from uh, different avenues, right? So the next verse we see, he will not quarrel or cry out and no one will hear his voice in the streets. The way that Jesus' ministry will happen is by quietness, by not announcing it, by not showing up and telling you who's in charge and setting down a new flag and being like, all right, let's round up the old guys, right? These days, large government takeovers are less common uh, than they were in those days. But the principle translates. When a new nation goes to set itself up in a new area, they establish their laws and communicate them to the people. If you were to watch something like this on the news, you would see people walking, you know, soldiers, people walking through the streets, usually with guns, uh, talking about what the new laws are, and uh, the people get a sense of what they will be subject to in the coming days. But the servant in the original declaration back in Isaiah, and of course here, is to break custom with the world and to do it a different way. People have always obeyed God with their own sinful tint to it, right? The way we get to choose to obey God can be sinful. We can be obeying God, but we can be wrong at the same time, right? We can be not obeying God at the same time. Uh, for me, it takes one second to just think of the Crusades. You know, for Christians to think that a sword has any place, any place in their hands or in the conversion of lost people is nonsense. I, can, I have no time for it. So... <laughs> That's a, that's a sinful way that people would obey God, right? What this means for Jesus is that he won't act like any common successful rebel, right? He will have a different system for establishing justice. And I think, again, of, of the, the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, you know, it's one of the three things I remember from high school history. Rome had peace for like 150 years straight, but they only had peace because they silenced all the opposition, right? It's, it's peace at the cost of death. It's not real peace. It's not real peace. It was only peace because they were stronger than everyone else who didn't want them to have peace. Jesus' kingdom will not be marked by violence, by oppression, by power. That brings us to this next verse, and this is the one that, man, I'll read it. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. To my mind, this is the most shocking phrase in the whole passage, and it is one that God gave me such peace with, right? The servant is prophesied to be, on the one hand, the one who brings justice, the servant of God who's bearing the spirit of God to make his kingdom in the world. But on the other hand, we read here, he's someone who will not even break a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering candle, right? Jesus is countercultural already, like I said, his kingdom will not be marked by violence or oppression or power. Uh, he'll announce his kingdom not in the streets or with a loud voice. But another element of that countercultural nature of his ministry is to be so tender, to be so compassionate, that no one and nothing is outside of his care. No one and nothing is outside of his love. He's going to restore the broken and fragile people of God who can't see a way to keep surviving on their own. 
His ministry will be characterized by quietness and peace for a time, right? We get to that last uh, line in this verse, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, But that is his whole goal when he comes to the earth as an incarnate man, right? He's inaugurating the kingdom of God, telling anyone who will listen, telling, right, about the life-changing renewal that stares back at them when they meet eyes with Jesus. Now, I'll tell you my story about how God used this passage to minister to me, and we'll uh, get to wrapping up. I work part-time as a residential painter, and uh, in the summer, we get to paint exteriors at condo developments for people who have more money than they know what to do with, okay? (laughs) These people spend money on hostas, right? I just learned that word. There's a lot of other plants, but that's the one I remember, right? That's a hosta. Maybe you know. These things are fragile, okay? These people care a lot about their flowers. And even though you only get your house painted every six or seven years, and it takes three days in the middle of August when there's a lot of people fussing about your house, you still sometimes think, and you're, hang on, if you love landscaping plants, you are not my enemy. <laughs> Let me say that. Just if you care more about the plants than the people who have to, you know, take the weeds out and stuff. Like, don't do that, please. Anyway, <laughs> some of these people will remind you all day, every day, not to get paint on their leaves, on the leaves in the side of their house of their gated community that no one is ever going to see. All right. <laughs> so, it's too much of a rabbit trail. So anyway, uh, they don't want you to trample on their plants. And truly, I don't want to just destroy things for no reason, right? It's frustrating, but you have to do your job. These plants are fragile. Uh, just pushing them out of the way to get at the house walls often uh, can ruin them. And if you snap a plant, it's pretty obvious that it's been snapped. So most of the time, you go to the bottom of it, and you pick it, and crumple it up really small, and you put it under a bush, right? And they never know. So, <laughs> hey, hey, if, any, if I painted for your house, I'm sorry, okay? Um, you know where I'm going with this, right? So I, I had been carrying around this turmoil because of a deep hurt that I experienced a few years back. I had been carrying this around, and I talked with a friend about it, and they recommended a book to me, and the book is actually called The Bruised Read, and I never read it. Uh, but it's, uh, it's like 400 years old, uh, but it taught me about this, this prophecy, and I thought about it, looked about it, read about it, um, and I learned about it from that conversation, and it just clicked in my head. Right? I felt so fragile. I felt like anything could just set me off on a spiral of despair, honestly. Like, how could God let such a horrible thing happen? What could possibly be the purpose of his will in this situation? And I still don't know. But often, uh, just a little aside, if people leave the church, their reason, other than you know, hypocritical Christians, their reason is because they can't square the world that they see with the God that they hear about. Right? They're given, a, I would say, an improper expectation of, of God's work in the world. And that's another rabbit trail again. But anyway, people leave the church because they see so much pain in the world, and they're like, how could a good God who's all-powerful not prevent evil, right? Something else going on there. I don't have the answers. But I remembered those terrible plants at the rich people's houses, and I, it clicked that just like them, though those plants are fragile, on the brink of destruction, a, a strong wind would knock them over. Jesus doesn't give up on us. When a strong wind would knock us over, Jesus doesn't give up on us. 
when we are a, a smoldering wick, when we're at a candle that's burned too low and the wax is starting to come up over the, the, the thing, uh, Jesus doesn't blow that candle out. He doesn't throw it away and get a new one, right? Jesus doesn't give up on that hope that someday the candle can burn brighter again. He is tender. He harbors hope. And someday, even if it's not today, someday it can get better. And that last phrase uh, really confused me at first, right? Till he has brought justice through to victory. The method of peace and quiet ministry marks a period of Jesus' ministry in the world, right? If we read the Gospels, we see, you know, we see paintings of Jesus playing with sheep and being very soft and gentle. And overall, he's marked by nonviolence. And there's some other times that he's aggressive. Um, essentially, that's how Jesus is the first time, right? He taught us how to win by losing, right? He taught us how to win by losing. And when he comes back, he's going to win by winning, right? Like Isaiah 42, it's, it's a hidden treasure because... We often give up our Bible reading plans by the time we get there, right? And I know that for me, whenever I gave up my Bible reading plan, I would skip ahead to Revelation because that's, that's the good stuff, right? I, I thought that. Um, if, you, if you don't understand, if you understand one thing about Revelation, it's that Jesus is not here for peace next time. And I kind of hold that intention. Um, but he gives us a way to live now that is marked by peace and quietness and not power and not prestige and not violence and as far as we can take that, right? There's the last phrase here in the, in, uh, the prophecy is verse 21. In his name, the nations will put their hope, right? Jesus is the hope of Gentiles. In addition to the hope of the, the Israel, the Jews, he's also the hope of the Gentiles, this passage finishes with Matthew's proclamation to anyone who reads, Jesus is the hope of the nations and the Jews alike. God makes the world right through him, and they put their hope on his name. Names convey identities, right? Chase has brought this up a few times recently. They put their hope in his identity, in his service of God, in his place in God's court, in, in his being God, right? His character and his place in the world is worth hoping in. Uh, so that will we'll move to reflection and action, right? So I just have two reflection questions and then one action for us today. So a question you can ask yourself is, in what ways is your relationship to the world not like Jesus? Is it characterized by power or violence or manipulation or slander or, or other, other ways where you're obeying God but in your own sinful tent? Just take stock of your life. I'm not asking you to come up or stand up or say, I mean, tell someone that's what confession means, but ask yourself, is your relationship to the world characterized by taking rather than giving? Do you understand, the other question is, do you understand how beautiful this vision of existence is? Do you trust Jesus to care for you when you have to face horrible things? I know that for myself, I don't always live in that place. When I experience a terrible thing, I will spend four hours on TikTok. And that is a confession, actually, because I need to, like, get on top of that. But I'll choose my own thing, right? I'll obey God on, you know, some other time, you know. I'll, but for now, I'll solve my problem my way, right? Do you trust Jesus to care for you when you have to face horrible things? 
And then the action, the thing you can do today, every day, and if it's your first time, welcome. But put your name, or put your trust in the name of Jesus. All right, so this Jesus who takes up the cause of the bruised, the crushed, and the oppressed, he himself was bruised and crushed and oppressed to accomplish our redemption. Actually, I'm going to open this up to an invitation today. Uh, If there's anyone here who hasn't given their life to Jesus, but you want to, you can do that now if you want. Uh, It can look like a prayer and telling someone about it. And then we'll have a prayer team afterwards for anybody who wants prayer too. But I'll pray as an example, and honestly, I pray this prayer of repentance all the time. It's something Christians can do whenever they want. Um, And it's just the way that you start the relationship, the way that you jump into the family of God, it's very easy to enter, right? So I'll pray as an example, and you can pray along if you want. God, I know I have sinned against you. I'm sorry, and I want to repent. I believe that Jesus Christ died for me to make things right again. Would you please forgive me? And with that, I'll close in a prayer for for everybody. Lord, teach us your way in the world. Teach us your way so that we're not just seeking after our own efforts or gaining power the way the world does. This upside-down way that you taught your people how to live. Thank you for weaving together this book, this Bible for us, for speaking to people so much that we could write books and fill shelves upon shelves upon libraries with books about what God says. Thank you for that privilege, God. Make us more like you. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.